making our way through Hebrews, and we are seeing uh, how it is, why it is that Jesus was made lower than the angels. It's a perplexing reality. We saw this remarkable Christology in Hebrews chapter 1 about the deity of Christ and his worthiness of all of our praise and adoration and the fact that we must incline our ear to the sound of his voice and hear him speak because he is God alone. And then in Hebrews 2, we make this transition into Jesus uh, viewed from the perspective of his humanity and his weakness, the God who is made lower than angels. What we'll see is that Jesus became lower than the angels so that he could bring salvation to us. He became lower than the angels so that he could bring salvation to us, so he could accomplish redemption in behalf of his people. In this section of scripture uh, that we're going to begin this week and then be looking at over the next two weeks through verse 18 is going to begin to move into the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus, which is central to the theme of Hebrews. Hebrews is going to spend a great deal focusing on the priestly work of Jesus Christ. And before we get to his priestly work, we are going to see Jesus this week and next as of all things, our brother. Now, some of you are younger siblings and you have an older brother, and perhaps that was a beneficial experience and a blessing in your life, or perhaps it was a source of great torment and difficulty. Some of you always wanted an older brother and never had one. But the idea of uh, an older brother, as we will see in our passage today, is, is a big brother who is powerful and strong. A big brother who's able to lead the way and show you where to go and how to get there. A big brother who's in your corner and a big brother who's on your side. A big brother who isn't ashamed of his younger siblings. He's not embarrassed by them. He doesn't use his power and authority to domineer over them. Rather, he's a big brother who serves his little siblings. Jesus is your big brother, and he is, in fact, your perfect older brother. So regardless of what your status is on this earth with regard to brothers, you actually, all of us, have an older brother, and that older brother's name is Jesus. And his ministry as our brother, the way the writer of Hebrews portrays it this morning, is absolutely remarkable. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste of death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, from whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But instead he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. This unit of thought is one section beginning in verse 10 and going down to verse 18, but 
the Christology concerning the humanity of Christ is too rich here. We're not going to blitz through that. We're going to slow down and we're going to take it in as we go. And so the writer is beginning verse 10 by saying, For, for it was fitting that he, and so he's explaining why it is that verse 9 happened. Verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor now because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste of death for everyone. And so he's writing and he's speaking about the very Son of God who was brought low, who suffered, who was actually born for the purpose of dying. And he's describing him in this weakness, this humiliation. This is something that a Greco-Roman mind would have found very distasteful. The thought of a deity who would suffer. The thought of a deity who would express weakness. The thought of a deity that would undergo humiliation. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, contrary to what you would think in your natural way of thinking, it was actually perfectly proper. It was appropriate. It was fitting that God would treat Jesus in this way. See, the, the he in verse 10, the one from whom and by whom all things exist, is the Father. Paul referred to the Father in this way in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, when he said, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So the he in verse 10 is the Father. So it is fitting, it is right, it is appropriate that the Father would do what? The main verbal idea here is that he would make perfect through suffering. It was totally right. It was totally appropriate. It was a very good plan that God the Father would make Jesus perfect through suffering. This was a good plan. It was a good plan to humiliate the Lord of glory. It was a good plan for him to suffer. Why was that a good plan? Well, it was because we'd gotten ourselves into a mess when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And this was the only way to bring about redemption. It was the only way to restore humanity. As we saw last week, it was the only way to bring back dignity to humanity. It was the only way to bring back dominion to humanity. And so Jesus came to make right what had gone wrong in Adam. And as the writer describes this salvation work here, he says, it's in bringing many sons to glory. This is why he tasted of death for everyone in verse 9. You think about your ultimate destiny, the ultimate purpose for which you exist. It's that you might exist with God for eternity and share in His glory. This is what you were created for. You're saying you were created to, to be on this earth temporarily but ultimately to reign with God in glory. If, if Adam had never sinned, he would have just continued living without death, bringing glory to God, enjoying God, God's glory being throughout the earth. Because Adam fell, the earth was cursed, death entered into the world, and now Jesus comes to undo that and reestablish God's original design from the beginning. This is what is done by the one who is before all things, and in whom all things come together. When you think about your life and even your own salvation, we could say this, our, our view of salvation is not anthropocentric. That means it's not man-centered. Our view of salvation is theocentric. It is a God-centered view of salvation. It means that God saved you, certainly for your benefit, but ultimately for His own glory for his own reputation, for his own namesake. And so the ultimate destiny of you and me is to enjoy God 
and to have unbroken fellowship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he refers to salvation here, not merely as, as God's saving work in, in regeneration or in forgiveness, but God's saving work in actually bringing you to the point of the ultimate goal of salvation, which is glory. Paul would say in Romans 5 that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 2, we are to be seeking the glory of God in eternal life. Isaiah 60 prophesies of a day that God, in fact, will be our glory. And in that day, there will no longer be the need for the sun because the glory of God will be radiating around and that's all of the light that we will need to see. And so the reason why it was fitting for Jesus to suffer and to be humiliated in death was so that he might redeem those who had fallen and bring them into glory. This is your orientation in life now. Everything about your life is pointing toward that day. Rather than existing as an earth dweller, you are a, a stranger and an alien who is passing through to one day reach the ultimate destiny, which is the glory of God for all of eternity in heaven. And so the orientation here is, is for glory. And it was many sons whom he brought. Many sons. Now, of course, you could say sons and daughters. Sometimes a translation will do that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, actually Paul will explicitly speak of being sons and daughters of God. Uh, but I think it, it kind of misses the emphasis here to call it sons and daughters to understand um, the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. The idea is that all of us in Christ relate to the Father now in the way that a son and a father relate to each other. So he's not really talking about gender here. He's not really trying to talk about male or female or that distinction. If you're to think about it this way, just, just consider when you um, use the expression God the Father. God the Father. It's an anthropomorphism. It's a, it's a way of understanding him. But the idea when, when we say God is our Father doesn't mean that, uh, that God parents us the way an earthly father does in the exact same way. Right? There's not God the Father and God the Mother. Uh, God isn't revealed as a single parent that either is working outside of the home, busy doing other things, or he's a stay-at-home dad. See, the, the analogy of a father breaks down in many ways. It's not the exact correlation. Rather, the idea is that the way that we relate to God is, is best understood in our finite way of thinking is God would accommodate human language to say, let me help you understand the way that we relate to each other. It's like how a father relates to a son. And so when he says bringing many sons to glory here, what he's talking about is, is, is giving an inheritance to offspring. He's talking about providing them with a share, a legal right to the family estate. He's talking about the likeness that would happen from a father to a son. And so we are brought into sonship. We are brought into this relationship with God through the founder of our salvation. The writer of Hebrews says it's the founder of our salvation, the originator, the initiator the source, the author. Three other times this word is used in the New Testament and it always refers to Jesus. And if you were going to try and render the best way to capture what, what our author is getting at here in Hebrews, it would be the word pioneer. You just mark that right there in the text. It's one of the ways of translating this word and I think it's the, the best way to capture it. Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. Now, being in Oregon, we should understand this. Right, the Pioneers, the Oregon Trail, Lewis and Clark. Our basketball team is called the Trailblazers. And what, what does a pioneer do? Well, a, a pioneer is the first one to go out. And yet, the pioneer isn't just sent on a solo mission to go accomplish something. They're actually called to go on a mission, and part of the mission is not only to reach the destination, but it's to make a way for other people to get there. The pioneer's job is to reach the ultimate destination and to make a way for others to follow. In other words, Jesus didn't just 
start salvation. He didn't just found it. He didn't just initiate it, although he did all of those things. But he actually accomplished it in such a way that he was able to bring us along in the process. Richard Phillips writes, we follow a path blazed only by Jesus who leads us into the promised land of salvation and eternal life. He has gone where we could not go by his own resources of righteousness and truth. And now he has opened up the way to heaven for us. My friends, there is no way that you could have ever gotten to God on your own. There's no way that you could have ever cleansed yourself from your sin and your defilement. There's no way that you could have built an edifice tall enough to climb up to the heavens to reach for God or to somehow appease him through enough offerings or sacrifices or deeds that you might do. And so Jesus, when he came, didn't merely come to show us the way to God, but he first provided the way to God and then showed us how to get there. Even right now, Jesus comforted his disciples by saying, I'm going to go right now, and what am I going to do? I'm going to go get to heaven ahead of you, and I'm going to start working on a place that I'm going to prepare for you. I've got a lot of work to do. I'm the pioneer. I pioneered salvation. I'm preparing a place in heaven. It's the work that I go ahead of you guys to do, and then I'm going to bring you along on the trail that I blaze. My friends, there is no alternative trail. There's no other path. There's no other means by which you get access to God. You cannot find a method of getting to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Now, if you're part of our audience of Hebrews, you're steeped in the Old Covenant. You're steeped in Israel's history. You've come to relate to God through the Old Covenant. And so when the author says the, the pioneer of our salvation, what would have immediately gone off on alarm bells and the sounds of the hearers would have been God's salvation work in the Old Testament. The way that God accomplished redemption in the Old Testament in the same way that we experience salvation through Jesus Christ. See, what it would have immediately conjured up was was the reality that salvation is ultimately God's work from beginning to end. There's a connection that's being made. As Tom Schreiner writes, the same Lord who led Israel in the Exodus, rescuing them from Egypt, is leading his people to glory through Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about this for just a minute. We're going to go back in our minds to the Old Testament and we're going to think about what we knew about salvation who was it that God used to lead Israel out of Egypt? It was Moses, right? Moses was the earthly leader. He was the head of the nation. He was the chief. In fact, when he was dying, he handed the baton to um, uh, Joshua and said, okay, now you're in charge. Everybody look to him the way that you look to me. But who put Moses in that role? Who commissioned Moses to be Israel's leader? Who came to him in a burning bush when he was tending the flocks? It was the Lord. Who equipped Moses with mighty signs and wonders? It was the Lord. Who gave Moses the words to say? It was the Lord. Here's exactly what I want you to go say. See, Israel followed Moses, but Moses was simply following the Lord. He was uh, really just a type of deliverance. God, in fact, was the one accomplishing deliverance. Listen as I read in Exodus chapter 3 when God came and he commissioned Moses. Here's what he said. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. I've come to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He said, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has heard me. I've heard their moanings. I've heard their groanings. I've heard their prayers. I've seen the oppression which the Egyptians have oppressed them. And now, 
Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, up out of Egypt. See, it was the Lord that did the work. It was the Lord who went and found Moses. It was the Lord who commissioned him and gifted him and provided the signs and wonders and gave the message. The Lord was the one who initiated upon Israel. He would say over and over and over the testimony that he was the one that would bring the people out. And when he gave them the law in Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 20 and they received the Ten Commandments, he prefaced it by saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, in the Old Testament, it was undeniable in the minds of the Jews. There was no question in their mind. The Jews never thought it was our mighty hand and our outstretched arm that brought us the deliverance from Egypt. They knew it was always the Lord who heard our plea for help and rescued us. He authored it, he initiated it, he accomplished it. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is picking up that theme and now he's connecting Yahweh's salvation of Israel in the Old Testament to Jesus' salvation of his people in the New Israel was delivered by Yahweh. We are delivered by Jesus. Israel came out of a foreign land in captivity into the promised land of Canaan. We come out of bondage to sin and Satan and we are brought to eternal glory in heaven. When you think back to what Israel's salvation was, it was absolutely remarkable. As a nation, they were under the thumb of Egypt. That was the world's superpower the most domineering nation in the world. No way to get out. And what does the Lord do? He brought Egypt to its knees. He brought Pharaoh to the point where he was, was begging the people to leave, the mightiest ruler in the world. And the people of Egypt were not only saying uh, goodbye, but good riddance, and here you can take all my stuff when you go too. It was a bountiful salvation. And for God to deliver Israel from Egypt, there was no battle, there was no bloodshed, there was no struggle. It was ultimate and final and it was accomplished by the Lord's doing. And so the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to think for a minute about that remarkable deliverance and I want you to recognize that the founder of our salvation, the one who brings the sons to glory is Jesus Christ and he has is, he is pioneered the way just as Yahweh did in the Old Testament. That was the pattern. What Yahweh did through Moses for one ethnic group, now God is doing for every tribe and tongue through Jesus Christ. Same pattern, just now expanded and elevated. And yet we read... That for all of the might and all of the power and all of the glory of this author of salvation, this pioneer, God made him perfect through suffering. How do you explain that? God made Jesus perfect through suffering. When we hear perfection, we think of Moral perfection, we think of spotless or blameless, without defect, without lack. Not, uh, the, the opposite of perfect is imperfect. And perfection could certainly be used in that way. It's used many times in Scripture relating to moral perfection. But that would be impossible for Jesus to, in any way, not be the Lamb who was blameless and without spot. So what is it meant here that that God would perfect the very perfect Son of God through suffering. See, we must understand that, that this is not indicating that Jesus lacked anything morally that he needed to simply make up for in suffering. Rather, we have to understand this in light of the Old Testament connections. See, where this author is going is, is he's about to reveal Jesus as our great high priest. And for priests in the Old Testament, they were at some point consecrated in their ministry as unto the Lord. The word that was used was ordination, right? So on a Friday, you're just a normal guy, a Levite, and then on Saturday, you're ordained, and now you're a priest. So there at some point, you went from a transition of, of being not a priest to being a priest, and there was a ceremony to consecrate that. There was a ceremony to signify that where you were ordained, where you were set apart. It's where you were shown or proved to be fit for that role. And so the idea here is 
Not that Jesus had to have anything added to his essential nature. It wasn't that he had some type of moral deficiency that needed to be made up. But rather to serve in the role of priest, there were things that needed to happen in his life to validate his qualifications to serve in that role. I gotta tell you, this is, this is a remarkable truth. If, if you've pondered it before, you still don't understand it because it's that incomprehensible. And if you haven't pondered it before, then this is a remarkable and wonderful reality about Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Jesus couldn't merely have been in the womb of Mary and been born and died as a baby and been a sacrifice for sins. He couldn't have merely appeared as an adult the week before the cross and died on the cross and been a substitute for sins. See, in God's design, he had to be born of a woman as a Jew under the law. And then he had to obey and fulfill the law's demands so that when he died, he was qualified as the substitute. All of the regulations, all of the rules, all of the ceremonies... That's why the scripture talks about Jesus and his line so that you can see the the line traced from the family of Abraham. It's why the scriptures talk about him being circumcised on the eighth day because that was part of the custom of the law that needed to take place to qualify him in such a way. Under the Mosaic law, as a priest was ordained, he would move from that transition point to now being affirmed in the role. If you're to to think of it maybe by way of analogy in Scripture where we see someone uh, who's qualified but not yet affirmed in a role, you could think of the Apostle Paul when he came to salvation in Christ on the road to Damascus. The scales were removed. He repented and believed. God gave him a prophecy and said, I'm going to do a lot of things through you and you're going to suffer greatly because of it. Then he went away and he was discipled by the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's been commissioned by Christ. He's been trained by Christ. And then what does he do? According to Galatians, before he went out into the ministry, he went back to the apostles. He submitted his doctrine before the apostles. He let the apostles check everything out, and then he went out having been sent out as they laid hands on the apostle Paul. He even says there that the apostles added nothing to his doctrine. Essentially, I I sat down, I talked to the apostles, I didn't learn anything. I'd already heard it directly from Jesus, so they didn't add anything to my ministry. And yet there was a sense in which although he was qualified and competent and he'd learned all that he needed to and he'd received the call, he wasn't yet affirmed in that role until he'd gone and, and submitted his teaching in God's design to the other apostles and he was sent out as one of them from them. And so the picture is that when Jesus came to earth as God taking on flesh and he was utterly perfect, he was already qualified in the sense that he didn't need to add anything to who he was And yet, in his preparation process for the priestly ministry, there was something yet that had not taken place. What was that? He had to suffer. He had to suffer. Actual suffering. See, it wasn't enough for him to to say, "I've, I've read in a book about suffering wasn't enough to be an expert because he simply could say, I'm the creator and I know what people go through and and I know what they think. I know their thoughts from afar and so I understand it in that way. He actually had to experience it. (laughs) We would have this happen sometimes uh, at work when I was in sales because notoriously what would happen is you'd have a a little tension between sales and operations, right? Sales loves to promise lots of things and then operations has to deal with fulfilling whatever was promised. And so, you know, you're in the moment, you think you can make a deal, you'll throw in a few things, you'll promise a little extra. It's kind of easy, you make the deal. And now the guys on the back end that have to fulfill the work are, are the ones that bear the weight. And so they said, you know, every once in a while, it would be good to, to take a guy who's in sales and we're going to make you do a ride-along. And on a ride-along, you're going to get in the van when it's 95 degrees outside and you get to hold a jackhammer and, and a shovel and you get to dig for 10 hours in the sun. And that will just be helpful for you next time you're in that sales role to make sure that you price the job appropriately, to make sure that you make sure that we have everything that we need from an operational standpoint. Why? Well, because to hear someone had a 10-hour day in the 95-degree sun of the jackhammer is one thing. To go do it for 10 hours is another. 
And so God in his wisdom said, the priest not only understands God and his ministry to people, but a priest also understands the people. That's why it works. That's what the priest is given for is, is to not only say, I can tell you all about God, but I know about the human condition. And so Jesus was made complete in his role through suffering. My friends, just think about this for a minute. Jesus did not play your sympathetic high priest by proxy. He didn't just read about the human experience in a book. And his suffering was, was pervasive throughout his life. Calvary was the culmination, but Calvary was not the only way in which he suffered. Just think for a minute of a few of the ways that we know of. Just a few of the ways we know of that Jesus suffered. Jesus was slandered and misrepresented. He knew what it was like to do good things and then have people publicly say he's doing it by the power of Beelzebul. To have people trash your reputation to say the things that you've done for the Lord were actually done out of an impure motive or empowered by someone else. And they believe the liars. He was misunderstood. He had his crowds and the, the disciples even asking, who is this? He was misunderstood his own family did not believe in him. They didn't understand him. Jesus knew what it was like to be ignored. In his moment of suffering in the garden, he's, he's pleading with the disciples, pray, pray because the hour of temptation is near and they fall asleep. And then he exhorts them again and they fall asleep again. And he exhorts them and they fall asleep again. Jesus told the man that he healed in Mark's gospel, don't, don't, don't go and tell anyone. And what did the guy do? He went and did the exact opposite. He went and told people. So he knew what it meant to be slandered, misrepresented, misunderstood, ignored and blown off. He knew what it was to be hated. He had people plotting to kill him. And if you don't think that that arose in his heart, the sense of the, the relational tension and the difficulty of, of a mob who wants to kill you, then you don't understand what he experienced in his humanity. He's disregarded by his family, he would have been incredibly lonely. Oftentimes, he's found bearing a burden that no one understood. He's weeping over Jerusalem alone. He's uh, in the garden alone. He is going out early in the morning to pray alone. He would have experienced the burden of, of um, not having really a, a friend to rely on in an earthly sense. So from a human standpoint, no one could have understood his situation. He knew rejection. He came to his own and did not receive, they did not receive him. He came and said, the gospel is here. I come in and give to you the kingdom. And what did they say? We don't want it. Not from you. He was rejected by his own whom he came to save. He was physically exhausted. When, when we went through Mark's gospel here, we saw he would have marathon weeks where Jesus and the disciples needed a break. They needed rest. And the crowds kept pressing on him. And the crowds kept pressing on him. And one ministry need led to the next. It's not recorded, but surely Jesus got sick. He would have known the disappointment of canceled plans, having a fever and chills and body aches and who knows what other physical challenges. Jesus knew fear. When he's looking into the cup of God's wrath, it was not a sinful fear, but it was a genuine fear of what he was about to endure. He was tempted 40 days without food and then Satan offering to have him just sidestep God's plan and do something of his own initiative rather than rely upon the Father to get a warm meal when he was hungry or to steal glory without the humiliation of the cross. Maybe you've been humiliated. Jesus knew what it was like to be humiliated. First of all, just condescending to take on flesh was humiliation enough. You have to get your diaper changed. You have to submit to flawed parents. And then your ultimate humiliation is, is the cross and, and, and dying in the most ignominious way that was a reproach and a scorn. He would have known distance from his father and his humanity. He left heaven above with all the angels worshiping him. And so even on the earth, there was a sacrifice of, of the distance from the father. 
that was ultimately manifested in him being forsaken. Jesus knew what it was like to be forsaken and deserted by all of his friends and even ultimately by his father who said, why have you forsaken? Why have you abandoned me? As I was meditating on just this handful of ways that Jesus was perfected through suffering for us, I began to think, no wonder why Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor. You understand that his counsel comes to us as, as one who has suffered on this earth. Not by proxy, but in reality. And in his suffering, he had to trust his Father. See, Jesus is equipped as a priest to meet our needs. He's equipped as a pioneer to meet our needs because he experienced what we experience and now he's able to come to our aid saying, I've obeyed through all of this and now I will help and I will give you aid. Do you see now why the author begins verse 10 by saying it was fitting? It was good, it was right, it was appropriate for God to do this. P.T. O'Brien writes, the notion of a crucified Lord was a scandal to the first century world. Crucifixion was a public form of execution and its cruelty was well known. For Jews, death by crucifixion meant a person was under the curse of God. While pagans protested, it was sheer madness. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians that the natural man does not receive these things. Doesn't welcome them. The idea of a, a crucified suffering Savior is folly to the natural man. What does the scripture say? Jesus was a stone of beauty, a stone of easy acceptance. No, he was a stone of offense. He was a stone of offense an object of ridicule and scorn. And so this writer saying, on the contrary to being something that, that is a reproach, it should be disregarded as if God did something inappropriate, this was actually very fitting because this was for you. This was for your salvation. And so he says, we have a solidarity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, for he sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now Jesus, of course, is the one who sanctifies. He doesn't need to be sanctified because he is the essence of sanctification and he's the standard by which all other sanctification derives its meaning. Jesus was the ever obedient one. He didn't need to be placed, uh, or excuse me, uh, he was the ever obedient one. Uh, but the idea here is that that there's a, a solidarity between Jesus and his people as it relates to the matter of sanctification. The idea is that when Jesus saved people, it was to make them holy. In fact, Ephesians 1.4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, it was that we should be holy and blameless before him. Romans 8.29, the great goal of God's work in your life was that you'd be predestined, that means the, the end result is already ordained from the beginning, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so on this path of bringing many sons to glory, and the path of bringing many of us to our ultimate completion, along the way we are being sanctified. We're being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're beginning to look more like him. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, God's will is our sanctification. Now there's two groups here. The sanctifier, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that is us. How is it that we are sanctified? Well, it's by employing the means that God has given us. See, if you were to think about sanctification, it's, it's God who says in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's always predicated on God's work. And, and so uh, one of my professors, Dr. George Zemeck in seminary used to always say the, the life of the Christian is be who you are. 
In other words, you already have this positional reality that God has given you and setting you apart in sanctification. You now reach for it by faith to grab a hold of that which God has already accomplished for you. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will tell these Christians in Hebrews 12, you need to strive for holiness. Strive for sanctification. The sanctification that without which no one will see the Lord. And so this verse helps us understand that sanctification is always by faith. You don't possess the ability to sanctify yourself. God does that. Yet at the same time, it's very simple in Scripture that you're sanctified through the means of by faith grasping a hold of that which God has given you to do. There are some who would diminish or make muddy this very simple and plain doctrine in Scripture. Those who would use the grace of God as a license for fleshly indulgences. This teaching is very popular today. It's very crafty. It sounds quite spiritual. Compelling arguments are used. Uh, It's very articulate. And the idea is that if if you simply meditate enough on your justification, if you simply uh, delight enough in your justification, then you will be sanctified. It's the idea of a, a passive sanctification in the Christian life. My friends, the scripture nowhere indicates that we are passive in sanctification. Others would, would perhaps represent sanctification to this idea that, that you and I uh, simply stop doing things that we shouldn't do and start doing things that we ought to do or stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things. Kind of a, a self-sanctification, if you will. It's just a matter of, of rearranging the furniture. It's a clear misunderstanding of the origin of sin, the nature of sin, the power of sin, and how it is that true sanctification takes place. Rather, the way the Bible represents sanctification is that uh, probably Ephesians 6 is one of the clearest places. God provides the armor that you need to don. He provides the weaponry. Everything is his resources. And now you're called to put it on. You're called to make use of what he has provided Think of it this way, if your sanctification is waning, you're not to blame God for the lack of his sanctifying work in your life. Rather, you are to pursue it by the grace which he supplies. My friends, if you're struggling in sanctification, then this verse is a comfort to you. Sometimes you just get discouraged in sanctification because we see the failure of the flesh, we see our sin, and we begin to think, man, am I ever going to be able to win the battle here? ever going to be Christ-like in some area? This is a call to be reminded that, that even in all of uh, the obedience by faith that you've been given to do, that your responsibility is ultimately trusting in the sovereign work of God who sanctifies those who are his. Again, this is connecting Jesus to Yahweh in the Old Testament. I'd encourage you to go read Leviticus 20, 21, and 22. It's, it's amazing there in the consecration of the priests, the way that the law is given, because uh, what you keep finding is God would give a command and instruction that he expects his people to obey, and then he'd follow it up and he'd say, I am the Lord who sanctifies. Carry out this command and obey it by faith. By the way, I am Yahweh who sanctifies. Over and over and over, he repeats it. There's no let go and let God theology here. This is you applying yourself by faith and yet it continually is undergirded by the God who is at work in you to accomplish what you never could in your own strength. And so here we see that Jesus Christ is sanctifying. We are the sanctified by God, by our salvation in Christ. And now we all have one source. The source, of course, is the Father. And that is why, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. And when you do shameful things, you probably feel in your emotions that God doesn't want to be associated with you. You intrinsically know that sin brings a reproach. Sin brings corruption. We know that God is holy. We know that he cannot strive with sin, that he cannot entertain it, that he cannot look upon it. And yet the writer is on to something here where he's saying by the very nature of your relationship to God now through Jesus Christ, 
regardless of the shameful deeds that you might do, he will never be ashamed to say, that's my little brother. It's my little sister. I mean, I picture the, the kid that is trying to throw with the, you know, the, the ball out on the field and doesn't have it down and, and is, is struggling in athletics. Right? And what does the loving parent do? They take pictures and they smile and they send videos to family members. Why? Because it's my kid and I love him. The idea here is that, that Jesus, by union now of, of making those who were his own, standing with them in solidarity, he's saying, there's one sense in which I want you to know we're on an equal playing field. You're not God, but you're granted the right now of, of relating to me as a sibling. I mean, can you fathom that? That Jesus Christ says, I'm not ashamed to call you and you and you and you and you and you my brother and my sister. Think about how foolish it is. So often we are ashamed of Jesus Christ. In fact, the, the Hebrews had borne a reproach for Christ and they were tempted to be ashamed. They were told in Hebrews 13, you need to go outside the camp and bear the reproach with Christ. Because the, the pressure is that Jesus is so scorned by the world around us that to identify with him means at least a little bit of shame. And so although we are at times ashamed of Jesus, Jesus is never ashamed of us. I can't get over that. In fact, he's... He's full of joy. Right here in verse 12, he's saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. What's he talking about? Well, now he's quoting Psalm 22. So David was essentially saying in Psalm 22, the Lord has abandoned me. That's how I feel, but I'm going to put my trust in him. The Lord's going to deliver me. Then when he delivers me, I'm going to go back to everybody and I'm going to boast in what God has done and I'm going to rejoice amidst the congregation, amidst all the people of Israel in my deliverance that the Lord has brought. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Lord, I'm going to come. I'm going to tell the Father's name to my people. And I'm going to be right there in the midst. I'm delighting to be one of them. To be a part of them. To in the midst of their congregation sing your praise. Literally, I'm going to sing hymns in church with God's people. That's the idea. The congregation is the ecclesia. That is the picture. When Jesus says, my brothers... Fun little New Testament tidbit. He never called the disciples brothers in his earthly ministry. He called them disciples, talked about them being servants, friends, apostles, those who were sent out. You know the first time we see the word brother appear? It was after he was raised. It was after he'd accomplished his work on the cross. That was the virtue by which he made them brothers. And so the very first time we see brothers appear is in Matthew 28 when the women are there and they see his resurrected body. And he says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my disciples. Nope. Go and tell my apostles. Nope. He said, I want you to go and tell my brothers. And this vernacular from Psalm 22 is now brought for the very first time in the New Testament and understanding this is the way that we relate to Jesus as his siblings. My friends, this is the most important blessing we gain by having Jesus as our elder brother, that we are now a part of the family of God. You understand, we're not his brothers and sisters because we're children of God. Rather, we're made children of God because we are his brothers and sisters. And that's what he says in the very next verse, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The idea here is that, that the children of God were given to Jesus as a gift. And you all know what it's like when you get paired up with someone and it's going to be a drag. Maybe you had a school presentation and you were an excellent student and they thought, you know what, we're going to take you and we're going to, this guy needs some help over here. So we're going to put you guys together now and you're going to work on the project together. And you're thinking, man, I had to get paired with, with him. Jesus was given us, not as a punishment, from the Father, but his siblings that he actually wanted. 
John 6, 37, all who the Father gives me. John 10, 27, my Father who has given them to me. John 17, in his prayer, Father, the ones who you gave to me. You understand that if you are in Christ, you are given to him by the Father, not as a punishment, but as a gift. He wanted that relationship with you. He wanted an intimate relationship with you. He's not embarrassed of you. He's not ashamed that you're part of his family. It wasn't a begrudging reception. He wasn't paired with you in that way. Rather, this was a gift. My friends, when you look at this passage, it is astounding to think of the way that God relates to you through Jesus Christ. And as our older brother now, he's an encouragement to you because he has suffered in every way that you have suffered. In terms of understanding the struggle of what it means to be a human. And yet, what did he do? Verse 13 says, I will put my trust in him. See, Jesus obeyed the Father. He trusted the Father. He trusted the Father's plan. Do you not think it took faith when he was in the garden? That he'd be able to endure the cross and that he'd come out on the other side and that the Father would raise him and that he would receive the prize for which he died and that he would end up in glory? That required trust. All of his suffering required trust. And so now, we have been brought into God's family where we are now the little brothers and little sisters of Jesus Christ because of our pioneer who made a way for us and who ministers to us in our weakness. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, what a wonderful thing you have done and what a wonderful thing you've accomplished. Lord, I confess, I often don't think of Jesus in this way. Uh, there's a part of us that almost feels uneasy to think of him in his humanity. So often we reflect on his deity and what he has done and accomplished as the God-man in that respect. Yet, Lord, what a comfort to know that, Lord, when you received us, you were happy to receive us from the Father. You're happy to have us as your brothers and sisters. That you were happy to sing with us praises to your Father amidst the congregation. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that our acceptance before you is uh, because of our glorious Savior and what he has done. Lord, may that fill our hearts with comfort and with joy. You are a great sanctifier and you are our pioneer and you are our wonderful, perfect older brother. We love you. Amen.